One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, and the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the word of the God, Lord. Good morning, Sir Michael. So good to be gathered together with you this morning. It'd be so good if you get a Revelation 21 open in front of you as we spend time in it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we have together. Thank you for this church that we love so much, Lord. And we pray that you would be teaching us uh, from your word as we dig deep into it this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Revelation chapter 21, looking at verses 9 to 27. Now, I believe that even though lockdown has been rough in so many ways, there are so many things uh, to be thankful for during this time. And one of them actually has that is that our lives have been stripped away. Uh, for some of us, our, our jobs have been stripped away. At least they've changed dramatically as many have gone on furlough. Our families have been stripped away if they live far away and we can't 
visit them. Our friends have been stripped away and the hobbies that we enjoy with them. And even church has been stripped away to some degree when we can't meet together in the church building that we love so much. And God is saying to us in this time of being stripped away, what will you live for now? What will you live for when everything is stripped away? And I think a lot of people are asking this question, both inside and outside the church at this moment. When my busy life slows to a walking pace, or maybe even comes to a crashing halt, what am I living for? What is my purpose in life? What gives life its meaning? The philosopher Dallas Willard points out that meaning in life is not an optional extra. It's a necessity. He says, a human world is one that holds together in terms of the future. It essentially involves meaning. Meaning is not a luxury for us. It's a kind of spiritual oxygen, we might say, that enables our souls to live. So what are you living for? Now, I don't remember a huge amount of what happened at school, uh, but something that comes to mind is our headmaster expounding Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the one in particular uh, was start with the end in mind. And in this text, we're given this picture of the most glorious end. Uh, we're given a picture of eternity, of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And then we're also glim given glimpses on how to get there. So my suggestion is that we start with the end in mind. We start with where we're wanting to go. Then we're going to look back to the start, where we are now, the beginning. And then finally, we're going to look at how to get uh, from the beginning to the end. So the end. So this chapter, as I said, paints this most beautiful picture uh, of the end, of eternity, of heaven coming down to earth and the two becoming one. And everyone who's died in Christ and been in the waiting room of heaven finds themselves coming down onto the new earth. And this picture that we get, the metaphor uh, that we have in front of us, is the radiant city of the new Jerusalem. John has been carried away onto a mountaintop. This is John the Apostle who's sitting on Patmos and getting these visions. And the mountain is reminiscent of Eden and Sinai and the site of Jerusalem. And this new city is lowered down and it is just absolutely stunning. I mean, all limits are cast aside when describing it. It's got the brilliance of a precious jewel. It's got high walls and it's got 12 gates. Uh, the 12 gates is an unusually high number for a city. The old Jerusalem that John would have known uh, only had five gates. But this new Jerusalem isn't being compared to the old, but being compared to a mega city of uh, like Babylon or Rome. And these gates in the city aren't to keep people out, but rather they to let the nations in, the peoples in, of verse 24. Each gate contains all 12 of the names of the tribes of Israel, and the foundations, each one contains uh, the 12 apostles. Uh, 
And so in this, we've got the old and the new covenant people combined, and they're doing their job of being a, a, a light to the nations and bringing the nations in to God. And this is um, indeed happening in a great city. It's huge. It's uh, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. I mean, just to give you um, just a, an example or a comparison, um, this is 20 times the area of the entire United Kingdom. It's gigantic. And as well as being huge, it's richly ornate with gold and with pearls and the most precious stones known at the time. And the gold is pure gold. Uh, and the stones are precious. And the glass is pure. Um, the city just can't be matched in any way. Uh, it's... It must have been almost blinding in its brilliance for the Apostle John as he got this vision. And as we take in this beautiful picture with its um, purity and its, uh, its brilliance and its preciousness, we might start asking the question is, of where, where is God in all of this? I mean, if you were to describe heaven, you would assume that God would be the focal point. But instead... The New Jerusalem, the, the Bride of the Lamb, uh, we seem to be the new focal point. Uh, so where is God in all of this? Um, this is the question that we're asking ourselves. But you see, God is all over this description because we, as the Bride of Christ, reflect his glory and his radiance uh, the bride is the glory of the bridegroom as the bride stands waiting for his, so the bridegroom stands waiting for his bride to come down the aisle. He wants all attention to be on his beautiful bride walking down the aisle. And we see the same in the lamb. He wants the attention to be on this beautiful bride who is coming down out of heaven. We are the wife of the Lamb, we are told. And so we find that we display the glory of God because we have been made pure and precious and brilliant by what the Lamb has done for us on our behalf. And so from this glorious picture, uh, which we see is the end, we want to work our way back to the here and now, uh, to us here at the beginning so we can work out how to get from where we are to that incredible end. So here's the beginning. John seems to be surprised in verse 22 that there's no temple. Uh, the temple was the centre of Jerusalem. It is the most important thing to be reconstructed when the exiles returned from Babylon. It is where God dwelt. It is where sacrifices were made which brought people back into right relationship with God. But in the New Jerusalem, it's disappeared uh, since it's no longer needed. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the one who died once and for all. And therefore, no more sacrifices are needed. 
and everyone who makes up the New Jerusalem is there because they are trusting in the sacrifice of Christ. Also, in the New Jerusalem, God isn't confined to a temple or to the Holy of Holies, but he is available to all in the city. In verse 27, we see the Lamb's Book of Life, which contains the names of everyone who has been trusting in the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb. God's love and justice met at the cross and offer a forgiveness, offer a new eternal life, which starts in the here and now and continues on into eternity as we trust in Jesus. But, and here's the massive but, there is another book which rocks up in the previous chapter, chapter 20. And this other book is the book of my life. It's mine. And in fact, everyone's got that. Each of us have a book of our lives. And I've got to say that the book of my life is just far from perfect. Either before I started trusting in Jesus uh, or after that point, my life doesn't match the purity and the brilliance and the perfection that we see in the New Jerusalem. And so we might start ask, asking ourselves the question, uh, how do we feel of about verse 27 when we read, nothing impure will ever enter it, that is the New Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Now, some people understand that as we pass from this life to the next, uh, that some, somehow our character will be uh, transformed so that we conform to Christ's character. Suddenly we'll be made perfect. But in fact, it's difficult to find conclusive evidence for this in the Bible. As Dallas Willard writes, there's a widespread notion that just passing through death transforms human character. Discipleship is not needed. Just believe enough to make it. But I've never been able to find any basis in scriptural tradition or psychological reality to think that this might be so. What if death only forever fixes us as the kind of person we are at death? What would one do in heaven with a debauched character or a hate-filled heart? Now, C.S. Lewis, our very own C.S. Lewis, um, proposes something very similar. He says that we enter into eternity as the people who we are, as our character. And then as time tends towards infinity, our characters continue on the trajectory that they had been running through our lives to the natural point of infinity in eternity. So he writes... Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. Now, there are good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, 
hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. But you might ask then uh, how this idea of character formation uh, matches up with us being saved by grace through Jesus' death on our behalf. Well, I think maybe we should picture ourselves as having been adopted from a dysfunctional family into God's family. We are now children of a perfect heavenly father and a relationship uh, with him is created. And there's real change in us as we move from our old dysfunctional family into our new adopted family. And in fact, all the conditions are now right for us to grow into the likeness of our new family and our adopted father. But we need to be willing to change for the better. If we refuse to give up our ways, our old ways, the ways of our old family, then life just won't be bearable in the new one for anyone, us or our new family. And all the new family wants to see is that we as adopted children are heading in the right direction, growing in the character of our adopted family. So therefore, immediate perfection isn't expected, only growth in the right direction. And like the Holy Spirit who produces fruit in us in Galatians 5, everyone is supporting us. And this means that character growth becomes vital in the here and now as we have our eyes focused on eternity. Here's Lewis again. The point is not that God will refuse your admission to his eternal world if you have not got certain qualities of character. The point is if, that if people have not got at least the beginnings of those qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. That is, could make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness God intends for us. So how can we work on our character so that through our lives we grow consistently more like Christ? Surely this is so important and worthy of our serious effort. Surely this has eternal value. Surely, in fact, this gives our lives meaning. So we've have a, had a look at the end, uh, we've gone back to the beginning, and let's have a look at the root uh, between the beginning and the end. And this is entirely application. And on the root, I think we need to start off personally looking at ourselves. So here's my suggestion, and I believe it's a biblical one. Don't aim to be better as a character than everyone at work, uh, or at home, or in the family, or in your friendship circle. Rather, aim for, per for perfection. Aim to be like Christ. And this is, in fact, the message of Revelation, I think or Revelation 21, when we look at the New Jerusalem and we see uh, what we are to become. And we won't attain this perfection in the here and now. 
but we need to aim for it because it's the destination that Jesus calls us to. Aim for glory and purity of the new Jerusalem. As uh, God tells us through Peter in his letter, be holy as I am holy. That's a strong charge for us. Or as Jesus said in Matthew, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And therefore, in your life, uh, cast aside everything that would hinder this. Don't be content with Christ just tinkering with your life. Rather, give it all to him and ask him what he wants to change. Ask Jesus big questions in prayer. Lord, do you want me in the job that I'm in? Because I want to be working in a way that brings you the most glory and is the best possible way for me to grow in your likeness, Jesus. Or, Jesus, would you like me to sell my possessions like some of those in the New Testament uh, if they're just going to hinder me and take up my focus and be distractions for me as I grow in your likeness? What do you want me to do? Lord, I don't want to live for comfort. I don't want to live for that false God. I'm not up for that. Take comfort away if you need to. Lord, I'm not up for the false God of security either. Take that away as well if necessary. Because my goal, Lord, is to grow in Christ-likeness. Let's be praying some big prayers like that. And as we do this, we need to be spending time in the Word. Uh, Dallas Willard is, is fantastic in uh, sharing how we need to be showering in the Word. He says, if we just have a, a, a drip drip, just a few drops of the Bible each day, we aren't going to become clean. No, we need to be spending time in, in the Word pouring down on us. Uh, in our quiet times, we need to be having quantity times and quality times with the Lord, because it's during those times that he is going to put his finger on the things in our character that really need to be changing. And also, it's during those times that he's going to be encouraging us, saying, look how far you've come. Look at the work that I've done in you. It's not complete yet, but we are on the right, we are on the right track. You're going in the right direction as we work on this together. So let's be showering in the word, maybe reading a book of the Bible over a weekend, or um, maybe we need to uh, be reading through uh, a, a gospel a couple of times through a day. Let's be showering in the word um, as we let it do its work on our lives, in our lives. And, um, and let's be taking it really, really seriously when we find him pointing something out in us that needs to change. Uh, the pastor in America, um, John Piper, in fact, had a couple of months off work so that he could work on uh, a character that he saw in himself, which he didn't like, uh, which is that of, of anger. He wanted to change that character trait. And so he took months off in order to work on it. Are you willing to put that sort of dedication into working on your character, to transforming uh, yourself with God's help 
to be more like Jesus Christ. And as we start this work ourselves, we'll realise that we need to share it with others. Uh, it, it's great spending this personal time with God, but we need others to be working alongside us and to encourage each other as we see change, as well as to be pointing out things in each other that need to change. And church is great for this, but in fact a smaller subsection of church is even better since we can be real and personal with each other. In fact, I think home group is probably the best place we possibly can be as we spend time in fellowship, getting to know each other, and in the Bible, and in prayer together. And in fact, at this particular point, I can't see any good reason why everyone wouldn't be able to be part of a home group at St. Michael's. They're over Zoom, so you don't need to leave your sitting room. You can even eat your supper uh, while you're joining your home group uh, for that time. And it needn't take longer than an hour. Why don't we all be part of our home group during this time? Or how about a reading group? Maybe grab a book like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which um, I've quoted a couple of times already today, and draw a few people alongside you. Say, why don't we read this together? Let's challenge each other from the book and see how it conforms to Scripture and then pray it into our lives as we see God working on us through this godly author. How about a reading group uh, or, or a home group? And then as we read through the text, did you notice that you can't find yourself individually in Revelation chapter 21 as the, uh, as the new Jerusalem comes down? You see, even though we'll still be real individual people on the new earth, the emphasis in this passage is us as a body uh, or as a collective Together we are the church. Together we are the body of Christ. Together we are the new Jerusalem. Uh, there's a togetherness that uh, um, God sees us uh, in. And this togetherness exists to help us grow in Christ-likeness in the here and now. So here's Lewis again. He says, it's easy to think that the church is a lot of different objects education, building, missions, holding services. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. Church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. Listen to it again. Church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. The goal of church at St. Michael's isn't successful services and it isn't a large congregation it isn't full rotors it isn't money in the bank you won't find mandates for any of those in the bible these things and everything else that we do should all contribute to the single aim of 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 ourselves and others being drawn into christ so let us together be encouraging each other towards the goal of growing in Christ-likeness. And this is our goal, both as a church and individuals, in the here and now, as we focus our eyes on that eternal city which is before us. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for this vision that you gave John. Thank you for the incredible eternal destiny 
that you call us to. And Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price to draw us in. And Lord, as we set our eyes on you in the future, Lord, we pray that we'd have the end in mind as we work towards it. Uh, we pray that we'd be growing daily in Christ-likeness. Grow us more like him, Lord. Grow us more like yourself, Jesus. And we pray that that would happen both in our lives individually, that we'd have times of showering in the word, of taking um, time off to spend with you. We pray that we'd see ourselves grow, our characters changing, uh, to conform to be more like Jesus. And we pray it wouldn't be just true for ourselves, but us as a whole church, as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.